0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. A quick warning. This episode contains discussions of gender-based violence, which may be distressing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to SEAC Stories. I'm Natalie Pearson. Today we're going to be looking at Laos, one of those countries in Southeast Asia that perhaps gets less attention from a research perspective than it deserves. But when a researcher is able to spend an extended period of time in Laos, as today's guest has... What emerges is a picture of a very rich and complex country that has plenty to reveal if you can just pay attention to what she calls the everyday. To explore these ideas and help us reconcile everyday experiences with much larger issues in Laos, I am joined by Associate Professor Holly High, who is Chair of the Department of Anthropology here at the University of Sydney's School of Social and Political Sciences. Holly has worked in Laos for over two decades, and her research is characterised by long-term fieldwork in rural and remote parts of the country. Her research looks at poverty reduction projects and agricultural, cultural and health policies, as well as local aspirations, worldviews and beliefs. A truly fascinating mix, and it is wonderful to have you here with us, Holly.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: I'd like to start by congratulating you on your new book, which is due out in 2021 with the University of Hawaii Press. And it's called Project Land Life in a Lao Socialist Village.
0: Where did this title come from, and what is Project Land? <laughs> the title came last, Natalie. So the title is actually Project Land Life in a Lao Socialist Model Village. And the model is important because um, in Lao, the word is tua and it means a copy or something that is exemplary that other people can model themselves on. And this has been a core plank in socialist ideas of social transformation, projects of social transformation. And I realized that I had chosen as my field site, a model village. It was actually what attracted me to the village in the first place. I was looking for a new field site because I'd finished a 10-year project studying a lowland rice farming village in Laos. And I'd written a book called Fields of Desire, which was about how people in this in this lowlands sort of ethnic lao area quite close to thailand how they felt quite disaffected by the socialist regime and had aspirations to be more like thailand they had a lot of relatives over in thailand they worked in thailand as migrant laborers there was a lot of crossing over the border as sort of an everyday strategy for achieving the better life that they were pursuing And the state, when I was talking to them, looked like an obstacle that people had to work around. And yet I called that book Fields of Desire because they kept on investing much of their hope into state projects. And when I asked them what they wanted for the future of their children, they often said they wanted them to go, you know, finish their state schooling and then get a job in the local bureaucracy So even in that village where people felt very marginalised and left out of the socialist revolution, the state had still managed to capture important elements of people's desires about a better future. And so for my second project, I wanted to study something different. So not lowland Lao this time, but uplanders and not Buddhists, but people who practice one of those very many and diverse non-Buddhist religions in Laos and so on. So I was looking for a contrast, but I wanted to stay in the South. So I was looking around Sekong province because it's uh, one of the provinces, I think there's only 3% ethnic Lao people in that province, almost all of them bureaucrats working in their local township. So it's very interesting from a cultural diversity point of view. And I just happened to arrive in Sekong province at the same time as Typhoon Ketsuna, which flooded the Sekong River and made most of the province inaccessible. It was also a terrible tragedy for a lot of people living along the river. So it was a very bad time to be trying to start a new research project. And so I was in Sekong Township sort of thinking, well, what am I going to do in this precious time that I have here? And so I went to the local museum. They hadn't opened it yet. Uh, it was still closed to visitors. They were setting up the displays. But I was still welcomed and people said, oh, come in. We're interested to meet an anthropologist. And they showed me some of the photo displays they were putting up about culture. And they had this thing called a culture village and all of these photographs. And they were like, oh, you want to know about the cultures, the ethnic diversity of Sekong? Great. Have a look at this. We've actually got some sort of model villages where you can go. They're very accessible. We've set these up, if you like, for people like you to look at. One of these places was called a culture village village. So I didn't have anything else to do, so I thought I couldn't lose much by going out. I took some staff from the from the museum and a friend from my old field site and someone to drive the car and we and we drove, you know, half an hour down the road and we arrived at this model village and I was just captivated and that ended up being my new field site. Holly, that is such an
1: interesting story and something that really appeals to me with what you've just said there is how you face this obstacle when you're in-country and the pressure is on to find your next research project. And you sort of serendipitously went to this museum and then discovered this model village. Was it a village that was built for tourists? Who was the intended audience for this village?
0: Well, those sort of questions became the backbone of my of my research project. I was like, if this is a model village, who is watching? Who is the audience? So on the first visit there, I got this tour of the village from a man that I came to know very well and become very fond of in a very complicated way. His name was Weepat, and I call him older brother Weepat. And he doesn't remember the first day that we met. So that gives you some idea of how many people showing up in the village he gets. Um, I was just one of a whole string of sort of blow-ins who come and say, oh, please show me your culture. Uh, So anyway, I arrived this day with museum staff and he showed us around. He sort of gave us this quick whistle-stop tour of, of the highlights of the village. You know, There was a very grand ceremonial hall built in the middle of the village, according to the traditional architecture with a thatch roof and carvings. A lot of the carvings were of wild animals and ancestors, but some of them were of bureaucrats wearing a suit and tie as well, and that was to indicate how now people followed the orders of the party state. What else was there? There were some very elaborate carved coffins that people keep under their rice granaries. As people get older, they prepare for their death. Younger people make their coffins for them before they die. And there was a beautiful waterfall. And then at the end, he took me to a house that was called the, the Culture Hall. And it was locked. And he said he had lost the keys. It was quite an elaborate construction. It was obvious that it hadn't been made by people locally. Somebody had been hired to make this quite solid building, but it had been locked up. And so I went away and got research permission from the government and research funding and all of those other things you have to do before you start a research project. And I came back two years later and stayed with WEPAT for an extended period of time. And I found out then, for instance, that the culture hall had been built with the idea that people would display their cultural artefacts to, to who, exactly? The first people who came to, unfortunately, a lot of these artefacts and heirlooms were sold to fund people's new lives down here in the lowlands. They'd come from a remote mountainous place and they had beautiful handicrafts like indigo-dyed cloth that had been hand-woven from cotton basketry and all of these other beautiful things. So when they first moved, the government had funded this culture hall where they were asked to put their aliens on display for sale. And then elites from the city came in and purchased them. And I started to realise that a lot of the displays were, you know, tourism was a part of the fantasy of what might happen, but I didn't see much guts to this, I didn't see many tourists actually arriving in the village, and the few that did arrive seemed terribly disappointed because they were coming to see cultural difference. But what was on display was conformity, conformity to a certain line about what acceptable aspirations for development are under the party state in Laos. So I started to realise that the display is for them, what they call kantung or cow the upper levels, you know, anybody higher up in the state bureaucracy than they are. One thing you have to understand about the Lao state is that almost everybody has some kind of role in the state. Every village has to have like a chief, a deputy chief, the head of the women's union, the head of the youth union. There's heaps of official roles for people to have. So the state has capillarized through everyday life. But it's also very foreign and strange in the sense that when people talk about the state, they use words like them. They don't call the state us, for instance. It's them. It's the levels above. It's the center. These are the words people use to talk about higher levels of the bureaucracy. And I realized that if this was a display village, the display was for the state in that sense, the higher levels.
1: So that's a really interesting juxtaposition from your research in Fields of Desire, where the state was constituted as a barrier that people were working around, whereas here the state seems very present, and as you said, it's the audience that the village was sort of performing to in a way.
0: Yeah, I would say there are probably more continuities than contrasts between the two villages. In Fields of Desire, I developed this concept of extimacy to describe the relationship of people to the state. And extimacy is a rather awkward union of the words external and intimacy. So while people do use this language of the state being this external thing that they have to manage their appearances in front of, that they have to manipulate, that they have to encounter in sometimes these quite brutal ways, it is also a very intimate part of how people imagine their futures and where they invest their desires and also their self identity just on the level of when people feel feel praised or fulfilled or or where they get their sense of satisfaction from more so in the second village than the first village for instance but common is the practice of hanging up certificates that you get from the state things called yor and other sorts of things, which can just be certificates recognising that you've put in effort somewhere. For instance, there are campaigns like the Women's Three Goods, and if you are recognised by the Women's Union as having fulfilled these goods, then they give you a certificate. And it's quite common in people's houses to see them put on display. So extimacy is the way I talk about how the state can be both this very external, I imagine it is very external, but also very key to people's sense of self and aspiration and ambition and satisfaction,
1: so on. Okay, great. So in Project Land, you're really focusing in on Laos' political system, which is socialist. And you argue that even though this system of socialism has declined in popularity as an economic system, it remains very much alive in the politics of culture and the culture of politics in Laos.
0: What do you mean by this? The politics of culture is the topic that I studied in Project Land, because it was a certified culture village, I took studying the model village as a chance to study Lao cultural politics, like the definition of culture in the Lao political project. And that's what led me to my realization of how important socialist traditions of thought are in the Lao political sphere. And that's what led me to argue that socialism remains important in the culture of politics, you know, the words people use, the way they position themselves, the way they call each other comrade and talk about solidarity and unity all the time. So I I approached socialism as a live concept or I was led to realise that socialism was a live concept through a study of culture and, you know, how culture is defined in this political field but also the cultural aspects of politics. So as I was writing this up, I was trying to stay focused on that topic, on questions of cultural politics and also how people position themselves politically. And I realised that as I was seeking this consistency through the text, there were some things that I was also consistently turning away from, ignoring, not fully dealing with. And these were all things to do with gender and the position of women. I realized that I needed to turn up the volume on women's voices in my book in Project Land. But I also realized that there was more work that I had to do in Laos regarding the story of how women have been integrated and not integrated into this indigenized socialist revolution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important point trying to understand it in its own terms rather than comparing it to some sort of ideal, particularly European ideal. Uh, so my next question is about gender and it touches on this idea of socialism which we've just been talking about and the values that socialism espouses of equality and unity and independence. How did this compare or contrast to the realities that you observed on the ground in terms of gender in this model village?
0: Well, this is the the topic of my current and future research So I'm currently thinking about women's engagement with socialism, particularly through the medicalization of women's bodies. So a lot of the images of progress for women under Lao socialism focus on transformations in the family, reproduction, marriage, and medical technology, especially interventions around birth but to use a Lao euphemism for things that are not up to standard, they would say, um, this is not yet complete. The aspirations for women's liberation, for gender equality, and for free and easy access to healthcare, and for women's control over their reproductive choices. These are all sort of aspirations that are not yet complete under the Lao revolution. So my approach to this as an anthropologist is to understand both Lao socialism and its concepts of modernity and freedom and equality and independence for these women. That's a set of values, but it's not as if these women and their social groups are coming from a position of having no values. They're just different values. So to give you an example of something I've been studying recently, in my previous fieldwork I went to a village festival, which is one of the requirements of being a culture village. You have to have a festival every year in order to qualify as a cultured village. So again, it's not as if people didn't have festivals before, it's just that they had a different audience and a different purpose. And this village festival, where people from the province and the district, dignitaries, as well as tourists are invited to come and watch displays of The uniqueness of this village. So all the women and some of the men put on textiles that are representative of their ethnic group. They have a parade, they display their heirlooms, make music with gongs, they kill a number of buffalo. So this is quite a big display event. So it's changed from being quite a closed. So when I wrote Project Lands, I wrote about this as part of the politics of culture under Lao Socialism. But there was a 10-minute episode in there, which I captured on film, where people were debating the meaning of rape. So the reason was that as part of the festival that year, the whole village, everyone who wanted to be a member of the village who was 18 years or older, needed to drink water that would be an oath. So drinking an oath, basically. And they were arguing about what the clauses in the oath should be. They could all agree that they wanted to ban witchcraft and sorcery and hiring other people who were witches or sorcerers to kill people. So nobody argued about that. They all agreed that there should be something about theft in there because people were concerned about both big thefts and also everyday little thefts going on in the village. All of these things were undermining village unity. But Another thing that was on the original version of the oath was something about sexual conduct. So in earlier village meetings, they'd suggested outlawing any kind of uncondoned sexual activity, so adultery, people having sex outside of marriage, any kind of thing other than, you know, sex within the confines of an approved marriage. But people decided that was too severe because, you know, if you broke the oath, you would die. And they said, my God, if we have this clause in here, everyone's going to (laughs) die. So they decided that was too extreme. So then they changed it to just outlawing rape. But what emerged in this debate was the degree to which rape was a novel concept to a lot of these people. Like they had to constantly be explaining, we're not talking about when people like each other. We're not talking about young people who are flirting. We are talking about when one person forces another. And it becomes obvious in the debate that for some people, Especially older men, but a lot of the men in the village couldn't conceive of an example where the rapist would be completely unknown and the rape would be secret. So for them, the rape was by necessity something that would involve a whole group of people, like it would implicate their entire group of relatives on either side, and it would create a division between these people that would have to be solved. And so they didn't see the oath as a way to do that because it would just result in, in the perpetrator dying. And then they were wondering if it also involved the woman being killed by the oath because in their traditional way of dealing with illicit sex was through the bride price system. So I was quite shocked to learn when I first went there that the price for adultery, if the woman consents to have sex with a man who's not her husband, say, adultery or sex before marriage or whatever, and this comes to light, the fine imposed in the village is the woman's full bride price. The man has to pay her family the full bride price if it's consensual, and then he becomes her husband. But if the man forces himself on her, the fine is half the bride price, and she stays with her original husband or with her family, and he does not become her husband. Now, to them, this made perfect sense because a full bride price represents a wedding. When you go to a wedding... It consists of a series of gift exchanges that culminate in the negotiation and then transfer of the bride price. So for them it made no sense at all that the fine for a rape would be larger than the fine for consensual sex because the the rights to the woman don't get transferred in that case. So I'm sorry if this material is quite shocking and maybe triggering for some people, but I hope to talk about these quite difficult conundrums around on the one hand, the socialist government's relentless drive towards eradicating superstition, as they call it. And on the other hand, this kind of amazement of this other cultural world where people and their relationships are valued in actually a quite completely different and incompatible way and how these people live are living in this process of enormous transformation in the core values of what a person is and what the value of a relationship is. I think that's quite a fascinating story. And I think looking at it through gender, particularly through the ideas of what women could be under socialism, this this has been very important plank in socialist movements all around the world, the idea of gender equality. But to look at how that has met realisation or not in a place as diverse and fascinating as Laos Yeah, I think it's a very exciting project.
1: It certainly is. And what strikes me about this example that you've just given um, is that you would not have been able to gain those insights if you had not been present when that discussion took place. And that leads me to my next and final question, which is about the impact of COVID on your work as an anthropologist who does this deep, extended immersion in country. How has COVID impacted your work and what insights from your research do you have about COVID?
0: Thanks, Natalie. I'm in the camp of thinking that COVID is an amazing opportunity and invitation for the world to wake up to itself and maybe start rethinking some of the things that we took for granted previously. And I think academia had become an impossible rat race. And I've really welcomed COVID as a chance to pause and to go back and do some of that careful work on the field notes and material that I already have and think about how I can get the most value out of what I have. I had a tendency to do more field work than I could ever possibly write up. So with COVID, I've actually sat down and thought, well, I don't know when I'll be able to go to Laos again. So let me go over all my field notes and see what could I make in terms of a book about gender in Laos based on what I have access to now. And then think very carefully about if I go to Laos again, how can I make sure it's really worth it? I think that's a really great point to end with you positioning
1: yourself to look at this question of gender in Laos as part of your future fellowship. And Holly, I'd just like to thank you for the time you've taken to share your research with us today and to wish you all the best with your next research project and the future fellowship. And congratulations on the book, which is due out in May 2021. Is that
0: correct? Fingers crossed, yes, who knows in these times, but I have the proofs that I'm going through now, so hopefully it will be out early next year. And thank you so much, Natalie. I've really enjoyed talking about this today, and thanks for having me as part of the SEAC podcast. Thanks, Holly. You've been listening to
1: SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app, If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.